0: Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.29, Alex of Hesse, The Acquaintance of a Man of God. Last time, we saw Russia be convulsed by revolution, and Alex have a bunch of kids, including a long-awaited son in Alexei, but suffer the tragic blow of him being afflicted with haemophilia. This genetic disease that prevented the blood from clotting meant that the smallest cut or bump could cause debilitating pain and could even be fatal. This created a sense of worry and foreboding to descend upon the imperial family, and caused them to cut themselves off even further from society lest it should find out that the heir to the throne was a haemophiliac. The inability of traditional medicine to effectively treat her son led Alex to seek alternative spiritual remedies, leading to the arrival at court, a Grigory Rasputin. But before we talk more about history's most infamous Siberian preacher, I have some housekeeping to take care of. First of all, I just want to let you know what the planned schedule will be for the Christmas period. Now, this is all subject to change, but I do intend to maintain the present schedule through the Christmas period. But instead of our regularly scheduled next episode on the 22nd of December, we are going to be having the return of The Other Half movie night. Since it's Christmas, I thought it would be fun to watch something a bit more fun and light-hearted. So I've chosen the 1997 animated film Anastasia. This film, which admittedly has a rather loose relationship with history, tells the story of the Tsar's youngest daughter, and how she escaped the, spoiler alert, murder of the rest of her family. So, watch the film, leave your comments on the Facebook page on what you thought, and join Caitlin and me next time to find out what we think. Second, it's probably not escaped your notice that we're on the downward slope for this second season of The Other Half. After Alex, we only have Missy of Romania and Victoria Eugenia of Spain left, and then it'll be time to wrap up. I've had a few people already email and ask me what we will be doing next, and while I have some ideas, I would love to hear what you guys think. Just to guide you, I'm going to be looking a little further back in time than this series, and would like to cover a more diverse range of women than the white aristocrats and royals that we have done so far. They don't need to be of the same family or even the same nationality, but they do need a theme or something that links them all together send your suggestions to podcast at gmail.com. Priority, of course, will be given to my Patreon supporters, who I would like to thank once again for their continued support. They will be the ones that will get to vote on what topic I choose eventually, so the power will very much be in their hands. Therefore, if you would like a slice of that power, then you will need to become a patron. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash theotherhalfpodcast to sign up. Right, I reckon that's enough admin. Let's do some history. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. diary entry, on November 1905, Nicholas wrote that he and Alex went and had tea with his cousins Milica and Stana, better known as the Black Peril. He then wrote the following fateful lines, quote, we made the acquaintance of a man of God. This man of God was Grigory Rasputin, and he has gone down as one of the primary actors in the fall of the Romanovs, mostly thanks to his close relationship with Empress Alex. He is someone who has gone down in legend, and the tales of some of his exploits have quite a bit of myth wrapped up with all the history. Indeed, the film that we're going to be watching next time portrays him as an evil sorcerer. But who was he really? He was born in January 1869, in the Tobolsk region of Siberia, over 1,700 miles away from St. Petersburg. He began life as a peasant farmer, but after seeing a vision from God, or so he claimed, he abandoned his wife and kids and walked all the way to a Greek monastery, as you do. When he returned a couple of years later, he did so as a Starets. The Starets were hermits who lived an ascetic lifestyle, travelling the country, blessing the poor and healing the sick. They were reasonably regular features of Russian rural life, but Rasputin was somewhat different from your usual Starets. He, for example, hadn't abandoned his worldly life, he still had his wife and children, and kept a rather fancy house thanks to all the money he brought in from his ministry. He also ascribed to a rather unusual form of orthodoxy that argued that it was only through sin and subsequent absolution that one could be truly holy. This explains his rampant sexual indulgence, often in mass orgies that usually involved a hefty degree of S&M thrown in. His appearance is actually the subject of some argument, the prevailing view of him comes from the pen of Robert Massey, who described him like this: quote, "He dressed roughly in loose peasant blouses and baggy trousers tucked into the top of heavy, crudely made leather boots. He was filthy. He rose and slept and rose again without ever bothering to wash or change his clothes. His hands were grimy, his nails black, his beard tangled and encrusted with debris. His hair was long and greasy. Not surprisingly, he gave off a powerful acrid odour. Ew. However, some aspects of this portrait have been challenged. For example, it has been pointed out that contemporary sources mention that he rather enjoyed steam baths, so he can't have smelled that bad or looked quite that bedraggled. What seemed to entice people to listen to him and become his followers were his eyes. The French ambassador described him as being utterly hypnotic, and his gaze as being quote, at once piercing and caressing, naive and cunning, far off and intent, his pupils seemed to radiate magnetism. Everyone from peasants to aristocrats became transfixed by him and what he had to say, and his unusual teachings and supposed miraculous powers of healing became the stuff of legend. This all led him to St. Petersburg, and like so many other mystics, to the Salon of the Black Peril. There, he was introduced to the great and good of Russian society, and he had quite the impact. Women who became his followers often became his lovers, looking for spiritual fulfilment through his teaching that sin was the pathway to heaven. Men looked at him from advancement, seeing how many influential followers he had, and, as we know, he was about to gain the patronage of the most powerful couple in Russia. Lest we blame the black peril for everything, he came recommended by some churchmen. One senior cleric wrote that Rasputin, "'Is a peasant, a man of the people. Your majesties will do well to hear him, for it is the voice of the Russian soil which speaks through him. I know his sins, which are numberless, and most of them are heinous. But there dwells in him so deep a passion of repentance, and so implicit a trust in divine pity,' that I would all but guarantee his eternal salvation. Manifestly, God has called him to be one of his chosen. Although Rasputin's influence is often thought to have solely derived from his ability to calm and heal Alexei, which we'll talk about in a bit, he was initially brought in more because of his reputation as a holy man. He would come to the Alexander Palace to talk with the Tsar and Tsarina in private about God and faith, and then they would bring him to the nursery, to lead the children in prayer. The royal family, which had always idealised a romantic view of the Russian peasant, and were all deeply religious, very quickly took to this man that they named Father Grigory, or Our Friend in code. But his real value to Alex and Nicky was in his unique ability to help their son in his hours of torment. Alexei was an incredibly fragile boy, but this didn't match up with his rather boisterous personality. He liked to run around and play with his sisters. He enjoyed playing tricks and messing about. One palace Insider wrote, He thoroughly enjoyed life, when it let him, and he was a happy, rumping boy. But he was constantly constrained by his mother, who employed two big, burly sailors to keep him from harm and out of mischief. And there was an excellent reason for this. Any accident, any mistake could lead to Alexei being in great danger. Pierre Gilliard, the children's French tutor, described one such incident. The Tsarevich was in the classroom, standing on a chair, when he slipped and in falling hit his right knee against a corner of some piece of furniture. The next day, he could not walk. On the day after, the subcutaneous hemorrhage had progressed and the swelling, which formed below the knee, rapidly spread down the leg. The skin, which was greatly distended, had hardened under the force of the blood and caused pain which worsened every hour. The Tsarina was at her son's bedside from the first onset of the attack. She watched over him, surrounding him with her tender love and care and trying a thousand attentions to alleviate his sufferings. One morning, I found the mother at her son's bedside. He had had a very bad night. The Tsarevich lay groaning in bed piteously. His head rested on his mother's arm, and his small, deadly white face was unrecognisable. At times the groan ceased, and he murmured one word. Mummy. His mother kissed him on the hair, forehead, and eyes, as if the touch of her lips would relieve him of his pain, and restore some of the life which was leaving him. Is there any wonder why Alex would have done anything, tried anything, talked to anyone who could ease even a little of her little boy's pain? Rasputin had that power, and once Alex became aware of this, she quickly turned to him whenever her son was in pain. Her sister-in-law, Olga, described one such incident. "'The poor child lay in pain, dark patches under his eyes, and his little body all distorted, and his leg terribly swollen. The doctors were just useless, more frightened than any of us, whispering amongst themselves.' Alex then sent a message to Rasputin in St Petersburg. He reached the palace about midnight or even later. By that time, I had reached my apartment, and early in the morning, Alex called me to go into Alexei's room. I just could not believe my eyes. The little boy was not just alive, but well. He was sitting up in bed, the fever gone, the eyes clear and bright, not a sign of any swelling in the leg. Later, I learned from Alex that Rasputin had not even touched the boy, but merely stood at the foot of the bed and prayed. There is no doubt that Rasputin managed to have a uniquely calming effect on Alexei, and to relieve his pain. There are just too many witnesses to discount it. So how did he do it? Well, the short answer is, we don't know. But there are some suggestions. Perhaps his gaze and ministry had a hypnotic power on Alexei, Now, this may be true on some occasions, but there are also times when he managed to have this effect while not in his presence. Perhaps it was the power of prayer. That, of course, is unprovable. But even if one is not a believer, you could make the argument that the placebo effect alone could have had an impact. The very fact that Alexei and his family believed that Rasputin could heal him could have had a powerful effect. Faith, it seems, is the most likely answer to the question. Alex was no fool. She knew how it looked for her to be bringing a man like Rasputin into the bosom of her family. What people would say, and how it would reflect on their reputation. For the first few years that she knew him, she would only call on him in times of great need, and then only in secret. But over time, it became impossible to ignore the successes that he was having. Now, of course, the people didn't know the real reason for Rasputin's visits, as they didn't know about Alexei's condition. Therefore, they just saw a shaggy, unkempt peasant preacher being invited to dine with the Tsar and Tsarina and spend time with their young children. Alex, who everyone knew was fond of the more mystical side of Russian Orthodoxy, was blamed for this, yet another charge added to her rap sheet. As his influence grew and the stories of his exploits spread, the blame piled at her door only increased and Rasputin was not the only scandalous person that Alex welcomed into her close family circle of trust. Alex had very few real friends, and the most intimate of these was Anna Virubova. She was from a minor noble background, and had first met Alex when she was in hospital with typhoid during a visit by the Tsarina. Anna seems to have ascribed with this visit some link to her own recovery, for when she was discharged, she went to thank the Tsarina personally, and they quickly became friends. Anna was utterly loyal to Alex, and cared little for power or titles. This made her rather unique amongst the people of the Tsarina's acquaintance, and meant that this rather plain, unassuming young woman gained a place right at the Empress's side. The problem that society had with Anna had little to do with her own conduct, but the fact that Alex preferred to spend time with this nobody rather than the great and the good they couldn't get an invitation to as much as a tea party, while this daughter of a composer spent nigh on every day with her. Given this almost unique position at Alex's side, and the Tsarina's isolation, this meant that people looked to Anna as a kind of crystal ball into her friend's mind. If she was close to someone, it meant that Tsarina was too. If she ignored them, then they must be out of favour with the imperial family. Anna, like Alex, was a true believer in Rasputin's powers, and acted as a go-between. This meant that Anna was the public face of the Tsarina's relationship with Rasputin, and of course, this led to swirling rumours. Papers that could not publish critical stories about the Empress instead wrote about Anna and Rasputin, knowing that their readers would make the connection. And this was not helped either by Alex's own increasing isolation. This was partly because of her own worries about her son, but also her own deteriorating health. She had never been a particularly well woman, and the stresses placed on her body by almost constant pregnancy over the course of a decade, along with continuous fear surrounding her son's health, combined to cause her persistent health problems. She suffered pains in most of her joints. She was constantly fatigued and frequently complained of chest pains she would spend many days in bed recovering from some ailment or another. And this all added up to mean that people might not see her for weeks at a time. This meant that, when she was in public, her every action was analysed carefully, and wild rumours would be sparked from the smallest pretext. As we all know, tabloids and gutter journalists love nothing more than to fill a vacuum with scandal, and Alex was a victim of this on many occasions. For example, at a ball in St. Petersburg, Alex was asked to dance by Prince Alexander Orlov. Just that, just to dance. But whispers started almost immediately. The Tsarina hates public occasions, and rarely stays long. But who is this handsome man that she's dancing with? She must be sleeping with him. But in the Tsar's bag, and you know he's an Orlov. That family has a history with shagging Romanov empresses. Remember Gregory Orlov and Catherine the Great? It's happening again. And now he's the commander of the Tsarina's own regiment. That's convenient. Oh lord, what an awful scandal. We really should stop talking about it. But did you also hear? You get the picture. Anyone that managed to penetrate Alex's walls and become a family friend received outsized attention. If it was a man, then they had to be having an affair. If it was a woman, then she became the subject of intense jealousy and scurrilous rumour. Equally, those that tried to pry Alex away from those that she trusted found themselves shunned. The most high-profile victim of this, of course, was Alex's sister, Ella. Rasputin had, by now, set up shop in St. Petersburg, and his days were spent in constant audience with a never-ending parade of followers. With some, he just spoke or prayed. With others, he dined, and with quite a few, he had sex. His sexual appetite was voracious, and there was no shortage of women from every social strata who were willing to sleep with him, either out of curiosity, hope of spiritual fulfilment, or in the hope that, by doing so, they could gain absolution and salvation. You may have thought that this would have led to a stream of jealous husbands, but many men were only too willing to let or even command their wives to sleep with Rasputin hoping that by doing so they may gain some sort of spiritual or political advantage. But while Rasputin was gaining an ever-growing cadre of followers, there were far more that were disgusted by his antics. The church hierarchy in particular were concerned that he was setting a terrible theological example and that people would be turned away from their orthodox teaching towards his more unusual interpretation. But when senior clerics went to speak to the Tsarina, they were turned away. There was also concern about the amount of political influence that he was gathering. He had the ear of the Tsarina, and she had the ear of the Tsar, and that meant that there was no shortage of power-hungry men that befriended him, funded him, and did him all sorts of favours so that he might put in a good word for them. For all of these reasons and more, Ella's friends begged her to intercede on their behalf to try and make the Tsarina see sense. Ella knew her sister, and knew, therefore, that it was a fool's errand, but she also knew that she had no choice but to try. Alex did love her sister, but she couldn't do what she asked. How could she send away the only man that could calm her son? How could her sister ask her to choose between what was politically advantageous and the welfare of the heir to the throne? Also, Rasputin never acted the way that everyone described around Alex and her family. Sure, he could be crude, but was that any worse than the stuffy manners of the so-called high society? They were just jealous, and using Rasputin to get to her. She wouldn't let them. Rasputin was too important to her and her family. Those that sought to tear him away must have ill motives, even her own sister but the efforts to be rid of Rasputin would not go away. The Prime Minister, Pyotr Rasputin, ordered the secret police to do some digging into Rasputin, to follow him and to question his followers. What they turned up was a litany of charges, including sexual assault of nuns, and this was all written up into a report that was presented to the Tsar. Then there were the letters, Rasputin was getting less and less discreet about his relationship with the royal family, and more and more overt with his sexual escapades. He began to brag of his power and influence to those around him, including that he frequently would kiss the Tsarina in front of her young daughters. He also showed one friend some of the letters that Alex and her daughters had written to him. These showed just how close the royal family were with Rasputin, and, when taken out of context, suggested a very intimate and possibly sinister relationship. One letter from Olga, the eldest daughter, said, quote, I often think of you, your visits, and the way you talk about God. It is hard without you here. There is almost no one to tell my troubles to. And then there was this one from Mr. Tatiana, quote, When will you come? Are you going to be in Prokhorovsko much longer? We would like so much to go to Prokhorovsko. When shall we go? Please arrange it, you can do anything. God loves you so, and you say God is so good and kind that he will do anything you ask. Mother is so ill without you, and it is sad to see her ill, but you know that, because you know everything. I kiss your hand, my dear friend, I kiss your holy hand. But the most scandalous letter of them all was from Alex herself. Quote, My beloved unforgettable teacher, redeemer and mentor, how tiresome it is without you. My soul is quiet and I relax only when you, my teacher, are sitting beside me. I kiss your hands and lean my head on your blessed shoulder. Oh, how light, how light do I feel then. I only wish one thing, to fall asleep, to fall asleep forever on your shoulders and in your arms. What happiness to feel your presence near me. Where are you? Where have you gone? Oh, I am so tired, and my heart is longing. Will you soon be again close to me? Come quickly, I am waiting for you, and I am tormenting myself for you. I am asking for your holy blessing, and I am kissing your blessed hands. I love you forever. These letters, and more besides, were leaked, and were quickly circulated around the whole empire. No one could deny that they were authentic. And it didn't take much to take them out of context and see them as proof that Tsarina was sleeping with this renowned sex pest and that she was allowing him to corrupt her beautiful young daughters. No one, by the way, now is seriously suggesting that Rasputin and Alex were engaged in some sort of affair. All of Alex's letters to her close friends read like this. But at the time, it was widely believed. Alex was absolutely furious with Rasputin for being so careless with her private correspondence. But she did, at this point, refuse to dismiss him, and her vehemence meant that Nicky was loath to go against her. When the Prime Minister Stalipin went to him and presented the damning list of charges, he said to him, Everything you say may be true, but I must ask that you never speak to me again of Rasputin. In any event, I can do nothing about it. Whether this was powerlessness to act against his wife's will, or an unwillingness to dismiss the man that he believed was curing his son, is unclear. But what we do know is that Stolipin took matters into his own hands and banished Rasputin from St. Petersburg on his own authority. Alex was absolutely distraught and begged Nicky to overrule his Prime Minister, but he refused to do so. Instead, he merely sent Rasputin on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land for a few months. Hopefully, after all that... The whole thing would just blow over. Alex wasn't wild about that, but she was forced to comply. She had been outmaneuvered by Stalipin, but she would have the last laugh. Only a few months later, the royal family and Stalipin were in Kiev for the unveiling of a statue to his grandfather. Rasputin travelled there and shook his fist at the passing prime minister, shouting, quote, Death is after him! Death is driving behind him! Sure enough, the next evening, Stalipin and the royal family went to the opera together to watch a special performance being put on in Nicky's honour. Alex, in a shock to the events, refused to attend, and so Olga and Tatiana went in her stead. During an intermission, a man rushed up the aisle and shot Stalipin twice. He died a few days later. To Alex, this was nothing less than divine justice and proof of Rasputin's power, As he had predicted the Prime Minister's death. She famously observed Those who offend our friend may no longer count on divine protection. Stalipin's assassination meant that Rasputin was free to return to St. Petersburg, and he quickly began stirring up as much controversy as he had ever done. Stalipin's successor as Prime Minister, Vladimir Kokovstov, was equally keen to get rid of Alex's favourite. Press censorship had been relaxed following the revolution of 1905, and this led to a proliferation of stories about Rasputin, each more lurid than the last. He guaranteed sales even when the stories suggested impropriety with the royal family. Headlines splashed that the Tsar washed Rasputin's feet, that he had raped all of his daughters, they had ejected the Tsar from Arun so that he could violate the Tsarina, they had turned the Alexander Palace into his own harem. The sales were so strong indeed that editors were happy to pay whatever fines were imposed for violating the laws, as there were still quids in. Eventually, the weight of public pressure became too great even for the Tsar, and so he agreed to an official investigation into Rasputin's antics to be led by the President of the Russian Duma. He collated all the information along with fresh evidence and was about to present his findings to the Tsar when a knock came at his door ordering him to relinquish them. On whose authority? he asked. The Empress Alexandra, came the reply. The President of the Duma ignored the request from Alex arguing that he had been ordered to investigate Rasputin by the Tsar and only he could order him to relinquish those findings. Prime Minister Kakovstov wrote later that, At first I enjoyed Her Majesty's favour. In fact, I was appointed Prime Minister with her knowledge and consent. Hence, when the Duma and press began a violent campaign against Rasputin, she expected me to put a stop to it. Yet it was not my opposition to the Tsar's proposal to take action against the press that won me Her Majesty's displeasure. It was my report to His Majesty about Rasputin. From that time on, although the Tsar continued to show me his favour for another two years, my dismissal was assured. The changed attitude of Her Majesty is not hard to understand. In her mind, Rasputin was closely associated with the health of her son and the welfare of the monarchy. To attack him was to attack the protection of which she held most dear. Looking for allies within the imperial family, Kokovstov went to the Dowager Empress Marie, but there he was preaching to the converted. She promised to speak to her son, but made it clear that she didn't think it would do any good. Quote, My poor daughter-in-law does not perceive that she is ruining both the dynasty and herself. She sincerely believes in the holiness of an adventurer, and we are powerless to ward off the misfortune which is sure to come. You can see in these words the extent of the hold that Rasputin's ability to heal Alexei had on Alex. But some of this is exaggerated, or maybe the influence of future events coloured people's minds. Because the Prime Minister did manage to secure another exiling of Rasputin, this time back to his village in Siberia. This suggests to me that perhaps Rasputin's hold over Alex at this time was not as strong as some may have supposed. She certainly believed that he had a calming effect on her son and could ease his suffering, but perhaps she didn't yet believe him to be a miracle worker. She certainly was not happy to see Rasputin exiled, but she didn't kick up a huge fuss. Indeed, as we shall later see, when her son was next taken seriously ill, it would not be until the last minute that she would call on the Starrets again. Although the royal family spent the vast majority of their time at Zasko Selo, they did travel around the empire. To do that, they mainly went by train, though in reality it was more of a palace on rails, with private cars being set up for Nicky and Alex, and another for their children, as well as a dining car set to seat 20 with a kitchen staffed by the finest chefs. For security reasons, there were three such trains, each going in different directions to stave off the threat of assassins. The family's favourite method of travel, though, was yacht, though that was more of a pleasure and leisure pursuit rather than a means of travelling from A to B. Every June, the family took a trip around the Finnish coast aboard their personal yacht, the Standard, a a four-and-a-half-tonne butte that put the first-class cabins of the Titanic to shame. Life on board ship was informal. The family knew the crew intimately, and the girls were able to wander the decks freely and alone, safe from the knowledge that nothing could occur while at sea and surrounded by friends. While her husband and children frolicked around the ship and in the sea, Alex was primarily confined to her chair, knitting, reading and writing letters, accompanied by one of her daughters assigned to keep her company, or her friend Anna Virobova. It was aboard this ship but Alex made what would be her final trip to England in 1909. They steamed over to the Isle of Wight for a regatta week, where they were joined by the British royal family led by King Edward VII. Edward had intended to meet his Russian relations in London, but Nicky and Alex's fear of revolutionaries extended to England as well, and so Cowles was seen as a more secure site. Alex was delighted to be back in her country, The one in which she had spent her happiest years, and in seeing her uncle Bertie again after so many years. The only place that could rival their beloved ship for comfort and informality was their palace at Livdavia in the Crimea. For Alex and Alexei, this was the place where they went to rest and recuperate after an illness. Indeed, she was so relaxed there that she was known to go shopping alone in the nearby city of Yalta, something that she would never have done in St. Petersburg. Olga, Tatiana, Marie, Anastasia, and to an extent Alexei, had an idyllic childhood. They were not unduly burdened with education, as we discussed in a previous episode, so much of their time was dedicated to play. They had dozens of pets, including a cat called Vaska, a French bulldog named Ortipo that apparently kept the whole palace up with his snoring, and a trained donkey called Vanka. Oh, also an elephant, yes, an actual elephant, along with two llamas and a parrot, amongst others. It wasn't so much a palace as a menagerie. The family's greatest shared passion was photography. Everyone owned their own Kodak personal camera, and so took dozens of photographs each day documenting their everyday lives, and pasting the developed photos into a vast library of albums. What the children lacked, though, was friends, and this led to them developing some rather odd habits. Visitors commented that the girls lacked social and emotional maturity, even Olga and Tatiana, who by 1912 were in their late teens. People said that they all acted like a bunch of 10-year-olds together, and that they had little to no idea how to act in society. There was certainly no consideration as to their marriage prospects just yet. Girls of Olga and Tatiana's age would be in the shop window in most royal families of Europe, but Alex cloistered them up in Zasukasaylo. Alexei had a little more attention paid to his education than his sisters had, but his condition meant that it didn't start in earnest until he reached the age of nine. This was very late to begin formal schooling, and the Tsarevich lacked any sense of discipline. He was lazy and hated to be corrected. In many ways, he was a natural Romanov. He would charge around the classroom, threatening to cut his teachers' hair with scissors or throw books at them. Such boisterousness only engendered fear on the part of his teachers and family, worrying what damage the young boy might do to himself. In September 1912, the imperial family set off for a late summer trip to their hunting lodges in Poland. At the first of these lodges, Alexei had an accident, knocking his knee against a bathtub. After a few days of pain, however, the injury appeared to heal as they moved on to Spala, a lodge deep in the Polish woods. Alex was concerned that Alexei wasn't much enjoying the trip and so took him on a carriage ride through the forest with Anna Virabova. The road was bumpy and potholed and it wasn't long before Alexei was in abject pain. Horrified, Alex ordered the carriage to turn back but the damage was done her son, was heavily bleeding internally. The injury that Alexei had suffered at the first lodge had not really healed, and the carriage ride had caused immense damage. Anna later recalled what happened in her memoirs, and I'm going to warn you right now, this is pretty haunting stuff. Quote, that return drive stands out in my mind as an experience in horror. Every movement of the carriage. Every rough place in the road caused the child the most exquisite torture, and by the time we reached the home, the boy was almost unconscious with pain. The next weeks were endless torment to the boy, and to all of us, who had to listen to his constant cries of pain. For fully eleven days, these dreadful sounds filled the corridors outside his room, and those of us who were obliged to approach had often to stop our ears with our hands in order to go about our duties. During the entire time, the empress never undressed, never went to bed, rarely even lay down for an hour's rest. Hour by hour, she sat beside the bed where the half-conscious boy lay huddled on one side, his left leg drawn up so sharply that for nearly a year afterwards, he could not straighten it out. His face was absolutely bloodless, drawn and seamed with suffering, while his almost expressionless eyes rolled back in his head. Once when the emperor came into the room, seeing his boy in his agony and hearing his faint screams of pain, the poor father's courage completely gave way and he rushed, weeping bitterly, to his study. Both parents believed the child was dying and Alexei himself, in one of his rare moments of consciousness, said to his mother, when I am dead, build me a little monument of stones in the wood. I'm just going to interject here. I profess to be no expert in this, but I would hazard that that, all of it, is a parent's worst nightmare. To see your child in such torment for days and days at a time, and be powerless to stop it. For him to be in such pain that he literally wastes away in front of you. For him to accept the inevitability of his own death, and to have made peace with it. Astonishingly, through all of this, the Tsar and Tsarina were still carrying out public duties. They were exhausted, physically and emotionally, and going through all kinds of personal hell, but they couldn't let on about their great secret. How they managed it without breaking down in front of everyone is anyone's guess. The best doctors in the land were summoned to Spala, but they could do nothing. Alexei was pleading, quote, Mama, help me. Won't you help me? Won't you? But of course, there was nothing she could do. Her son, was clearly dying. The press was notified that the Tsarevich was gravely ill, and asked for the Russian people to pray for him. The next day, Alex, who by now seldom left Alexei's side, scrawled a hastily written note to her husband, saying that it was time. He rushed to the bedside, followed by a priest who delivered the last rites. Alexei's moans were shorter, his life apparently ebbing away, His parents prayed for hours while the bulletins were prepared for the next morning's papers announcing the death of the Tsarevich. Then Alex got up and asked Anna to send a telegram to Rasputin. He may have been in disgrace, and his very presence threatened the dynasty, but to save her son, she would have dealt with the devil himself. A few hours later, Rasputin's response arrived. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. This gave Alex some comfort, some hope. And, amazingly, it was well-founded. By the next morning, the swelling had gone. The internal bleeding had ceased. Alexei had been spared. How this happened is a complete mystery. And while it is fun to speculate, it's ultimately not all that important for our story. What does matter is what Alex thought. To her, there was no doubt as to what had happened. Rasputin had saved Alexei's life. He had harnessed the power of divine and caused a miracle to occur. He was favoured by God and spoke with his voice. From now on, Rasputin was her first port of call whenever her son had an attack. But more than that, since he was so clearly blessed with God's favour, Why not employ him against the Empire's other problems? If he could save a son's life, could he save the Empire? And it is there that I will leave you for this week. Remember, next time will be the other half movie night with Anastasia. And I have heard a rumour in St. Petersburg that it is a great film. So I hope you enjoy it. See you then.